welcome to Edinburgh Church, my see tonight, and um, thanks for coming out this evening. Those few more joining us, so I'll keep an eye on people as they arrive. Um, I'll, it's the first of three sessions tonight, looking at how we handle different kind of emotions and situations to the glory of God. We'll begin tonight with sadness. Very glad that Katie's here. Um, many of you will know Katie. She's a good house based in Bath, who um, works on a Tuesday. I was very convenient for us with church nights in the afternoon, so she's here um, Tuesday afternoons, whatever time she's needed, now into the evening for us. So, yeah, glad to have, this is actually working, glad to have Katie with us, and I'm going to pray, and then we'll let Katie use the next hour or so, and then there'll be time for questions at the end. So if you've got questions, I'll just talk. you go along, because it's still much we're finished. Let me pray. Father, just thank you so much that we could be together in this way this evening. Thank you for Katie, thank you for her ministry, and thank you for the wisdom that you've given her through the words. Thank you for understanding the people. And Father, we pray that tonight we address what's a topic that invariably affects all of us in a broken world. Father, I pray that you just help us to be kind to one another, to listen well to one another, to listen to you and to your words, and Lord, to grow as disciples of the Lord Jesus. So Father, I pray you bless the next hour to us, and that we might be and uh, continually change to be more like Jesus. We ask these things in his name and for his glory. Hopefully you can all hear me okay. Um, I don't know if any of you have Disney Plus in your houses. I don't know. This is something that we've got since the lockdowns. We've got Disney Plus in our house now. But um, Disney and Pixar did this programme of pranks prank program where they were putting characters from Disney films and Pixar films into real life situations and then filming the reactions of the members of the public. So I particularly like one with Wally, um, I don't know if you know of Wally, the little robot, the, the rubbish sorting robot, where this lady in New York, she'd say to passersby, I've just lost my engagement ring, I'm not going to do an accident. I've just dropped it in the bin bag, although she said trash, trash bag. Um, will you just stand there and watch the bags for me? Make sure the bin guys don't come and take it away. I'm going to go and get some rubber gloves. But she'd disappear, and then out would come Wally, like a, a robot about this big, to come out and start sorting through the rubbish, and the lady's reaction would get filmed. And then, um, yeah, he would find the engagement ring. But there was one that they set up in Central Park. I'm not sure if you've seen the film Inside Out. Um, it's a, a film about emotions. These little characters live inside the teenage girl's head and they press these buttons on a big control panel um, and they press the anger button and she gets angry or the, and they did this control panel in, in, in Central Park and curious passers-by would come along and press a button not knowing that there were actors dotted around the park who would then burst out into these emotions that they pressed. So they'd press the anger button and this couple would erupt into an angry argument. Um, and they'd think, oh, that was funny. A coincidence. And then they'd press the happy button and the couple would hold hands and be really happy with each other. They'd press the sadness button and these actors would start crying to each other. And it, it was very funny watching their reactions. Well, as you know, our emotions aren't like that. We don't have an off button that we can press when we're feeling angry, we're doing anger next week, or when we're feeling sad. And actually, um, this evening we're going to be looking at that, looking at this idea that, that sadness sometimes comes and 
is it okay to let it linger? Should we try and ignore it? Should we try and move through it? What should we do? How should we handle sadness for the glory of God? Well, it's probably worth us mentioning here um, that, of course, there's a spectrum when it comes to sadness. So one person might be up, upbeat and feel sad very little. And when they do feel sad, they can pinpoint the specific thing that's made them sad. Where another person might live their life in utter darkness and depression. I know we did a seminar together. I think it might have been a couple of years ago on depression. Um, we're not going to be particularly looking at depression tonight, but more your sort of communal garden variety of sadness. The sadness that touches all of us. Um, not only are our emotions on a scale, but we face different life circumstances too, don't we? Different seasons of life, even different biological challenges. We're all currently facing a worldwide pandemic, like we can't ignore that. Not only are we facing it, we're still facing it. And that's brought up heartbreakingly sad circumstances, hasn't it, that none of us could have foreseen a couple of years ago. And yet for some of us so far, we've received an easier ride. Um, maybe the lockdowns felt quite nice for some of us. And yet still, each of us know what it is to have a flat day or feel a bit low. Whoever you are and whatever your ways of processing emotions, um, I don't think anyone's quite gotten through all of the pandemic without feeling a bit down, facing these ongoing logistical and physical challenges. And for some, perhaps we have weepy days, you know, when tears flow easily, but for others, sadness might look different. Not everyone finds crying a natural thing to do, and sadness might bubble to the surface in different ways, maybe frustration or grumbling or losing our temper, splurging money on ourselves or on our homes, insomnia, nightmares, even sarcasm or humour, escapism with food, computer games, social media. However we process feeling down and whatever the scale of our sadness, this question still remains. Should we let ourselves go along with hard feelings when we know we're so blessed in Christ? Can it be Horrifying act of worship to sit in our emotions a while, or can it be that the right thing to do might be to step away from pity and move on? Well, I'm going to say yes. That's my short answer. That's the spoiler for tonight. It can be simple to wallow, and it can be simple to avoid and ignore and dealt with emotions. And the flip side of that is yes, it can be true worship to groan out our sadness, and it can also be true worship to put it down and move on. So, if you're near someone in the room, um, why don't you turn together and try and do a bit of a brainstorm of what you think makes people sad. If we were to ask the random passerby on the street, what kind of things have we felt sad about this week? What kind of things get us down? And just scribble some things on your diagram and then I'll, I'll see um, what kind of answers we come up with in the room? Great. Well, let's move on because I want us to think about how sadness isn't out of bounds through the Bible. It's there in scripture. It's there when we look at Jesus. And it's here in this room in our own experiences. So, 
Thou should say that sadness is okay. And when I say that sadness is okay, I don't mean that it's enjoyable. Um, I'm not belittling it in any way. What I do mean is that we should have room for sadness in our Christian theology. So we're going to look at how sadness is legitimate and allowed in our Christian theology. It's okay to be sad as Christians. And we're going to look at how our personal experiences testify to this. The Bible testifies to this and Jesus testifies to this too. So our first evidence of Christians and sadness being, so, so yeah, we can just see that Christians being sad is, is okay. So I was going to share a particularly hard time that me and my husband went through some years ago uh, where things felt really, really hard and we got really bogged down and we struggled to access joy and gladness and thankfulness and all those things we should be able to feel as a Christian. And living a life of faith back then looked very different to what living a life of faith looks like for me right now. So it's okay to be sad and our personal sorrows evidence this. Five years ago, I had an incredibly uncomfortable pregnancy where I struggled with hyperemesis gravidarum, HG, you might have heard of it through Kate Middleton, she really got the awareness out there um, when people are sick through their pregnancy. I'm not sharing it for pity tonight because I stand here full of thanks and joy today and I'm very thankful that I don't struggle with this mental or physical anguish anymore. But I wanted to share it as an example of how being sad doesn't threaten our salvation or threaten our faith or even evidence a lack of faith. So um, think back to the worst sickness club you've ever lived with when you've been very sick and then times it by about 270 days. I was on three different types of anti-sickness meds in one go. I felt incredibly disconnected from God and all of reality actually. I actually felt like I'd sort of lost my faith back then, although now looking back, I could see that I was hanging on by a thread. I would occasionally pray, but they were very practical and desperate prayers, cycling myself up um, for the next little bit of liquid or little bit of food, because I knew I had to do it uh, to keep me and the baby alive. I only really left my bed um, to go into the hospital to be put on multiple rehydration drips and then leave again, back to the bed. TV or watching things on my phone made me sick. Books were no good because words would jump around the page because of dehydration. I felt rubbish for not being more thankful about a viable pregnancy. It didn't feel like a gift, it felt like a disease. And one of the hardest parts was that I'd been a stay-at-home mummy, healthy, happy stay-at-home mummy to save for two years at that point. And now all of a sudden, just the sight of her little toddler body her energy and what she smelt like would make me violently poorly. So I'd beg people to take her away from the bed and then I would just cry, sob with mum guilt. And my main connection with friends was them saying, how are you feeling today? And me just spiralling down. Honestly, the whole thing was a bit like a nightmare um, from start to finish and I was sad. And that sadness, it foggied my view of God. I found it hard to relate to anyone or anything other than my own sadness. And I felt let down by medics that couldn't help relieve it. And then in May, she was born. We called her May because we were so, so thankful that 
that God had brought her into the world early, she was due in June, I could begin the long, hard journey of recovering, yes, from the physical, but mainly from the mental aspect of that difficult time, which had just felt like some kind of captivity. But sadly, all was not well with May's birth. So I was taken into theatre after nine hours of labour, where she was whisked away and closely monitored in the neonatal intensive care unit. And as I lay in bed upstairs in the hospital, recovering from a C-section that night, she was having a seizure downstairs in the baby ward, and we later heard that she'd had a bleed to the brain. 13 days later, the consultant explained that we could take her home, but that it was impossible to know at this early stage how the bleed might affect her. It would be somewhere on a scale of severe brain damage, maybe cerebral palsy, being absolutely fine because her brain hasn't really started wiring itself yet, so it might just wire around the injury. Now, I'll let you know before I go on that Bay is my very silly, lovely, funny five-year-old daughter, and she survived it with no known effects. It's also worth me saying that God acted powerfully in that time to deliver us out of that suffering, but there are other services in my life and in your lives that are ongoing. We can't tell which of our situations that God will deliver us from in which timing, and we'll think about that a little bit later on. So back then, we were nervously taking this fragile little baby home, away from medics and experts, into a house and family that I had been absent from in so many ways for nearly a year. And I had no energy, and nor did my poor husband, who'd been working a full-time job, being a single parent, and the whole of that pregnancy. So we were full of relief that that pregnancy was over. We were full of happiness to have a new daughter to welcome into the family, but we were full of residual worry and sadness. I recently heard Neil's brother share a devotional on Job, and he drew our attention to this wonderful verse. Do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? Job 6, verse 26. It's a slightly confusing verse at first glance. Job says to his friends, who've spent a whole week quietly sitting beside him in the sadness, and then they've tried to give advice and counsel. Job says, do you think you can rebuke or reproach or give wise counsel to a despairing person? And he refers to a despairing man's speech as being like the wind anyway. You can't really anchor down the words of a person in utter despair and enter into some kind of apologetic debate with them because they can't hear you. They can't think straight because they're in despair. I remember at certain points in the pregnancy, friends would come and sit on the bed and they would try to reason with me into some kind of hopefulness, into some kind of thankfulness or comfort. I wish I'd known this verse back then because I could have just said to them, do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing woman is the wind? Why am I telling you all of this? Because here I stand today, so utterly convinced of God's goodness that I can't wait to tell you more about Jesus at the end of the seminar. Here I am rejoicing in the pleasure of pastoral care and the wonders God is working in hurting people and the hope and comfort that his word does bring. I went down to the depths of sadness 
but could it remove my faith from the secure grips of Jesus? No, it was horrible to be spiraling to unattainable, self-sufficient places instead of finding a sweet spot of coming to the Lord in my suffering. But was it detrimental to God's keeping me and his care over me? No, even being sad for a long time, it can't take away my salvation. After all, the Bible promises us that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. So my own personal sorrows seem to be a testimony to God's faithfulness and majesty in the face of this emotion. And yours are too, because you don't need to tell me the details, but I know that every one of you in the room has been through sadness. And yet here you are tonight, trying to seek out what God's will is, trying to learn more about Jesus. So the spirit is not thrown off when we feel emotions and the church family is not shaken when we share burdens and sorrows. Why don't we just pause there and just take a minute just to yourself to write on your handout just something you feel sad about at the moment or maybe a past sorrow, just something that means something to you. You don't need to show anybody this. Just, um, I'll just give you a minute, just write something down and then flip the page over, no one needs to see it, but it might just add some flesh to the bones of what we're talking about this evening. Don't need to go and scribble that down later in the seminar if it comes to you. Um, the evangelicals among us might feel quite comfortable so far. I've only shared a personal experience and we're learning from God just through a personal experience. So let's crank it up a level and look at what the Bible has to say about sadness. Um, I was going to give a biblical example here of a person in the Bible who feels really sad. And it's not just that it's allowed that he feels sad, but God actually welcomes it and puts it in his word so that we can see it. And I thought, I know what I'll do, I'll use Elijah. And there's a point in Elijah where he says, I have had enough, Lord, he says, take my life. And I thought, no, actually, I want to use the Psalms. The Psalms are so good. David's personal snapshots of feelings, anguish, guilt, loneliness, his heart cry over sin, his fear of enemies drawing in. The Psalm 142 says, I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out before him my complaint. And then the whole book of Job. But what about Jeremiah, the weeping prophet? Paul Peter, when he denies Jesus the third time, it says he broke down and wept. What about Hannah? in her deep grief, or Naomi and Ruth, I just felt overwhelmed and I actually wondered, is there any book of the Bible where sadness doesn't exist? It saturates our whole human existence because we're living in a world that is broken and hard. I thought I found the exception in some of the songs because it's just that fully loved up bride and groom, perfectly united, that picture of God with his bride, the church, but no, there are verses of sadness in there when the lovers are apart. So really, all, all of scripture points to this reality that sadness will be all over our human existence, even for those who live with Jesus as saviour and lord, as our shepherd and guide. Us getting upset is a part of that faithful life. But let's crank it up another level. Let's focus for a moment on Jesus, the ultimate permission to legitimise feeling sad is that Christ felt sad. 
it's okay to be sad. Christ's sorrows are evidence of this. Well, for those of us who are tempted to think that if we were just that little bit closer to God, maybe I wouldn't feel so sad in this situation. If I just prayed that little bit more, maybe I wouldn't feel so upset. Um, let's just remind ourselves of how close God the Father was to Jesus. We know that Jesus lived in perfect union with God. We're told in 1 John that in him there is no sin, there's nothing dividing them. And yet Isaiah describes him as a man of sorrows, <coughs> acquainted with grief. And as we read through the Gospels, the writers have captured accounts of at least three sorts of occasions where he cries in front of them. You'll probably remember when Lazarus dies, that little verse in the Bible, can you remember, shortest verse? Can anyone shout it out? Jesus wept. And that was when Mary and Martha meet with Jesus on the street in their grief with the other mourners. It doesn't seem to be a hopeless grief because he knows that Lazarus is bound for heaven. Or a lonely grief because he knows that he's going to bring him back in a minute and see him. But it appears to be this pure sympathy, united, crying together at death and loss of loved ones, crying compassionate tears with those who have been mourning around the deathbed. In that sad moment, he cries out the presence of death in this intimate setting, maybe a snapshot of just the presence of death in the world. It just painfully touches Jesus. Secondly, he cries over Jerusalem as he rides in from the east by the Mount of Olives just days before the cross. He has this amazing view of the city and her temple in all of its glory, and suddenly, it seems, he bursts into tears. Whereas with Lazarus, the orig original word suggests that it was quiet tears dripping down, this time it's a loud, non-self-conscious bursting out of sorrow. Why? Because Jesus knows that this day, as he enters Jerusalem to be rejected by God's chosen nation, that this marks the end of an era for Jerusalem. They, God's people, have had hundreds of years of preparation for this Easter week. All their prophets, without exception, referred to it, but Jerusalem stood hard-hearted, rejecting the identity of Jesus. They didn't want to see him as the promised Messiah. So as Jesus looks across the city, he knew that those wanting to live in sin, rejecting God, were about to be brought under perfect judgment of God. And 40 years from now, the Roman armies will come and encircle Jerusalem for the great siege. He knows how the temple will come crashing down and God's people will be scattered. And God, and here Jesus, loves Jerusalem. He loves his people and his heart breaks for them that they no longer live trusting in him and his promises. And he cries. And then thirdly, Jesus cries for his mission the atrocity of the cross that he's about to face. Hebrews 5 says that in the dark days leading to the crucifixion, Jesus weeps and prays and the Father listens. It's such a relatable and human picture of Jesus crying as he's anticipating hard things. It's human to dread and to wish that it could be some other way. 
And here Jesus shows us that it is not simple to long for a world untainted by sin and pain. I'm always struck by his deeply human prayer. If you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. Well, sadness is here. It is a legitimate feeling that we all face in a broken world. So I want us to spend the rest of this evening thinking about the two approaches to handling our sadness. There are actually different voices trying to speak into how to handle feeling lows, willingness to respond to sorrow in different ways. First, let's look at the world's call to respond. How does the world call us to respond to feeling down? Well, I think it tries to say happiness is the key and also good old self-sufficiency. Yeah, bad stuff happens, that's inevitable. Life is hard, but shouldn't the very best of us be able to rise above it, take suffering in our stride, suck it up and move on? The Western world sells happiness to us in spades. Every advert, every self-help book, every happy ending that you've ever watched, read or listened to. The secular world would have us believe that sadness does not belong in good mental health, nor does it belong in successful adulting. Surely, as we grow, we flourish and we should be able to buy the right products, keep the right friends, marry the one, and find the right systems to help us to grow old happy. If you're feeling sad, you need change. You need self-care and solutions. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps and move on. Is this a particularly British thing? Maybe a Western thing? Or maybe worldwide? We do just long for sadness to end. That's not really understandable. But does the Bible ever tell us to cheer up? Does it ever explicitly command us to bottle our emotions and hide them? After all, we're warned not to be grumblers. But I wonder how many of our ideas about whether you should give yourself permission to feel sad and whether it's okay to express our feelings to others, how much of it is based on human to human upbringings or role models? Has this been modeled to you in scripture or by Christ? Or is it the people that you see? People who often their main purpose is fostering self-sufficiency because they don't yet know the nature of God. So they can't yet see the great value of God's dependency. Well, then we have God's call to respond, a steadfast heart in all emotions. Um, I don't know if anyone feels like they might like to read for us the psalm just so you can get a rest from my voice. I might pick on one of the leadership team. <laughs> Would anybody like to read the psalm for us? Psalm 57, it's in the handout. Neil, do you want to have a Have mercy on me, my God, have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. I'll take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I cry out to God most high, to God who vindicates me. He sends from heaven and saves me. 
rebuking those who hotly pursue it. God sends forth his love and his faithfulness. I'm in the midst of lions. I'm forced to dwell among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They spread a net for my feet. I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart, O oh God, is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake my soul. Thank you. Well, David is scared, he's fleeing for his life, he's disappointed, this wasn't what he saw happening in his reign, he's sad, he refers to his circumstances as a disaster, but in his sadness he cries out to the God of all comfort and compassion, he appeals to him for mercy, he asks God to be his refuge, a safe hiding place, he clings to God as the one who can vindicate him, one who can save him out of the darkness. And he speaks to God about the struggles that he's facing. He doesn't have a faith of head knowledge where God is aloof, but a relationship where he can talk things through with his heavenly father. And David does this wonderful, real life, I'm going to say magical thing, where he finds this utterly unnatural and yet also so natural way of dealing with sadness. He manages, in spite of his great stress, to keep a steadfast heart in the midst of his suffering. What does that mean? Is it something we can learn to do? What would it look like and would it change anything? Can we really remain steadfast of heart when sad situations are squashing us and hard emotions are spilling out of us? Well, there's a tool that I use sometimes in biblical counselling that I want to share with you as we end this evening, where you look at the structure of a psalm of lament, like this one that we've just looked at, and you echo that structure to cry out your own stress and sadness to God. You'll see on your handout, there are four different styles of verse in all of these psalms. And that's what keeps the psalmist from spiraling into an unhelpful, self-pitying, self-focused wallow. So we're going to go through them in more detail all the way around. But they are approaching God. There are verses in the psalm where he just simply approaches God. There are verses of blunt complaint. There are verses where he's determining his trust in God and who God is. And there are verses of confident request. So, approaching him. When we're feeling sad, where do we go? Perhaps you have a family member that you like to chat to, or particular food or drink that you like to turn to, or maybe you like to zone out on a screen, or yeah, you might have your own way of dealing with sadness. But the first step, and it can sometimes be really counterintuitive, is to simply come, to step foot into God's presence in thought or in prayer, to say to him, 
God, I'm really struggling. I feel disappointed. I feel fed up or heartbroken. Whatever reasons we feel sad, we're always allowed to enter the throne room of the King of Kings and pour out our feelings to him. That's something that Jesus won for us on the cross. We're allowed to come to God, even though we're unholy and he's holy, and talk to him. And that's never a waste of your time, and it's never a waste of God's time either. Honestly, I spend the first seven months, I'm ashamed to say, or so, of that pregnancy grabbing at human solutions, needing answers from doctors, or diet changes, or Google. I waited for a wonder drug, or anti-nausea wristbands to come from Amazon Prime. <laughs> and I tried lying incredibly still for hours on end in the hope it wouldn't make me sick. But nothing worked. I wasn't really coming to him with my suffering. I wasn't really desiring to be in his I just wanted to sort myself out somehow. And there was a lot of worldly wisdom at my fingertips of how I might try to do so. I wasn't finding my way into his royal courts at all. So the first thing we're aiming for is to simply come. And in most of the Psalms of Lament, you'll just see that as the first verse of those Psalms, that the Psalms are just coming to God. The other type of verse is blunt complaint. Sometimes in biblical counselling sessions, you get some people who are natural outward processors, who talk and rant and lay it all out there, sometimes using colourful language or harsh language, because they know that what's in their heart is ugly and sinful, and they think that by getting it all out, we'll be able to work through it and get to a place of healing and comfort and repentance. I love those kind of sessions um, when people are real and simple in front of me because they care to confess it so that we can change but with others I get a feeling that some are holding back and focusing on being polite and kind with their words and careful a bit more polished I would probably be like this too trying to protect the conversation from going into an ungodly area but sometimes that might mean we can't fully bring things into the light or it just takes longer to confess to one another, but most importantly, before God. But let's remember that God is the kind of wonderful counsellor who wants us to come to him, warts and all, and honestly pour out where we are at. Whether our sadness is God reflecting things, you might be able to see from the things you chat about, things that make us sad, some of them are God reflecting, like injustice, that's a God reflecting sadness. Or maybe they're very selfish things, um, I feel sad because I'll be counting having one again. But it doesn't matter. God wants us to bring everything to him. He doesn't mind where your motives are. He just wants you to speak to him. So let's look again at Psalm 57. Can you see some of the blunt complaints that David brings? Until this disaster passes. He says, God, I'm in the throes of a disaster. People are hotly pursuing me. Oh my goodness, I watched that horrible documentary on BCI Fair about January's storming of the US Capitol. I don't know if anybody else has seen it, but the protesters and rioters and police officers and the US Congress, they recount their experience of, yeah, of that riot back in January. And the frontline police, they're talking about how they have to engage in this bloody hand-to-hand -hand combat with thousands of rioters 
armed with tasers, sledgehammers, baseball bats, knives. It was really horrible. David had an angry mob hotly pursuing him, and he reminds God about it in this prayer. Having a steadfast heart will mean crying out our sadnesses to the one who can act. Take your sadness and he can do beautiful things with it. Psalm 56 verse 8 says, God keeps track of all of the tears he's ever cried. As if he's collecting them all in a bottle. And of course, as we enter heaven, he will wipe every tear from our eye. Your specific details of the things that are making you sad, they matter to him. The things that you wrote down quietly on the paper, you can bring it to the Lord in prayer. It's a good and glorifying place for us to put the complaints on our hearts. It's what he asks us to do, isn't it? It's such a practical outworking of 1 Peter 5, verse 6. Cast all your cares upon him. He cares about you. And Psalm 55, verse 22. Cast your burden on the Lord. He will sustain you. Well, the next type of verse that we get in these Psalms of Lament is when the psalmists are determining their trust. They're proclaiming their trust in God's goodness. I found this quote from Adolf Tozer that says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. One of the most important questions isn't always, what is your suffering that's coming at you? It's, what does God look like in that suffering? When you think about it biblically, where is he in the details? Are you able to hold on to his goodness and love and his mercy and his strength? Is it hard to find him in your point of suffering? Do you need to seek wise counsel and, and tell friends that you're struggling? In, in the final weeks of my pregnancy, I had a thought that helped me steady myself in my faith. As I lay there just wishing that the nausea and the sadness would leave me, I had this clear realisation that one day it would. Honestly, you think that that would be obvious because I was being sick because I was pregnant and pregnancies don't go on forever. But it was hard to imagine it just coming to an end. But I suddenly became aware that God was going to deliver me out of this suffering. The thought of having a baby and suddenly feeling okay, that felt a bit beyond belief. But I began to put my trust in the fact that either I would be delivered because I was going to die from how poorly I felt and I would have ultimate deliverance from all suffering and sickness once and for all, or I would make it to having a baby, and he might just deliver me from sickness in this lifetime. Well, what do you know? I am here telling the story. To... Um, sometimes our sadness is this vehicle that he uses that helps us to cling to him, and he is the only reliable one. I'm thankful that that experience led me to understanding that our need for a saviour is so real. Our need for deliverance is so real. I don't rejoice in the circumstances that got me to that point, but I do rejoice in the reframing of that situation with a clearer view of who God is in that situation and how that still goes on to help me now. trying to think of time, whether we've got time for me to do this bit. I might come back to it at the end. Um, the final verse there, the final type of verse that we get in these Psalms of the Mount is confident request. 
but to the back of these things that we can remind ourselves of who God is. We're allowed to to his nature and ask him to help us in our sadness. This can feel uncomfortable sometimes, but Jesus models it. And the scriptures, they commend it. As we see who God is, character, we should be compelled by his generosity and mercy to request them. As we trust in his power to listen to every person on the planet and to act in sovereignty over all the earth, we should feel compelled to make pleas before him. As we see who we have become in the light of the cross and the resurrection, we are now his children, we are holy in his sight, we matter to him, even in the minute details of our lives, we can say, please act. Just like David does in Psalm 57. Well, why don't you um, turn in your groups and with a pen, maybe have a go at scribbling some of these verses, verses of Psalm 57, which ones you think they might be. Um, some of the astute among you will have seen, oh, I think I put it on my hand out anyway, that they fit neatly into A, B, C, D. I'm not sure I did them in that order just then. But why don't you put a little A next to the ones where the psalmist is approaching God, a little B when he's given blunt complaints, and a C when he's confidently requesting things, and a D when he's determining who God is. Try and do it together in your groups. Everyone can hear. Shall I repeat that from the point? And um, we're just talking about how it's not tidy. It doesn't go A, B, C, D. It's a real like scramble of emotions. Just, oh, but you're good. But, oh, but this is happening. Oh, but you are good. So can you do this? And it goes all over the place. And that is what we're like when we're in an emotional state. And also we're saying that just rumbling these things out to other people can sometimes not be that helpful. And they might not even hear a coherent thing anyway, whereas actually looking at the psalm in this way, seeing how you can structure your grumbles to the Lord, but without being hopeless, that's a really helpful thing for us to be able to learn. Did anyone else find anything different when you were doing, doing the exercise? Uh, probably about the dis discussion. The discussion, it was helpful to have discussion. Yeah, it's good to work these things through together, I think. Yeah, and it's good to always end on the positive. Yeah, yeah, so true. Like, we have so many faithful prayers in this room. I am sure that you do pray to God when you're struggling. But there's something amazing how the psalmists managed to sort of rally themselves into remembering who God is. And even in their prayers, they're lifting their eyes up and thinking it's not all hopeless. Actually, God is victorious over anything that can make us sad. And there is that, that positive end, even though his circumstances haven't changed. Actually, his circumstances aren't positive at all, but something in his heart has changed. And that's, that's where we want to aim for, that steadfast heart in the midst of our sadness. Well, we've not got much time, so I'll just finish by just pointing out again that just bringing us back to Jesus. I've just been made by Jesus as I've been thinking about sorrow and sadness because Jesus enters into 
our human sadness. It's not just that Jesus expresses sadness and that he shows us that it's okay to cry. Actually, he enters into human sadness. He didn't have to do that because of his great love for us. Jesus has this ability, this power to live a very easy, sadness-free life on earth. He could literally, with a finger, or probably even with his breath, or with his word, just make it that there is no suffering one foot ahead of him or two meters ahead of him or in the village he's in. But he doesn't do that. He loves us so much. There was something very special and loving, a part of his mission, that he let himself see and feel the things that we see and feel through human, fleshy eyes and body. Jesus stepped into it. He decided that facing that measure of sadness was worth it for a gain at the end. What is the gain? It's us. We are his treasure. Us being able to reside in a sadness-free eternity with him, living among us as an Eden, but better. So why don't I end us in prayer? Um, I'm just going to point you to this quote from Spurgeon as well, and I might use some of that in my prayer as we finish, um, because David talks about lions, and he talks about suffering, he's facing as lions, I just thought that little quote was a lovely one to put at the end of your hands Why don't I pray as we finish? Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that Jesus models to us that it's okay to accept when we're feeling sad, that it's okay um, to sit in the sadness for a minute if things are hard, and also that it's good for us to come to you with those sadnesses. But Father, we thank you that Jesus went one step further than that. He didn't just express sadness. He saw sad things and he lived sad things. He entered into sadness because he loves us so much. He doesn't want us to be kept in that sad place. We thank you, Father, that at the cross, Jesus made a way for us to go to an eternity, to one day be fully delivered from all things that make us sad. And we just, we long for that, Father, for that day when you will wipe every tear from our eyes. So we pray, Father, that um, this wouldn't just be tonight that we think about this, but that you would help us just going forward to give all of our emotions to you and to process them all in ways that bring glory to you. Um, and also that is for our good as well, that we do that. We pray that you would make us more Christ-like, even in emotions. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I think there's a little bit of time for Q&A. So, pass over to you, Neil. Uh, can we take questions from the yeah. floor? If you want to respond, or people are pleased to message me and sign Yeah, feel free to ask questions. Um, or chat for a bit. If you want to chat in your groups about whether you have any questions, that might be a good way to do it. And then, and then um, yeah, you can do that for two minutes. And then, <laughs> then you can ask me some questions. <laughs> Yeah, just anything you found helpful or confusing from this evening um, that you'd like to just bring forward for discussion. Right. Uh, and the good news is,
Yes, your lift has arrived as well, Julian, so it's looking up, yes. What, what, upstairs? Okay. I can wait. You can look for a car upstairs, but you might want to look just outside that door. <laughs> right, there we are. So, uh, thanks for tonight, Katie. I was just joking on that. Oh, um, so, uh, you're back next week, and we're going to be looking at anger. Okay, so, yeah, so I'm prepared for that. And uh, many thanks this evening for taking us through that song, for helping us think about how we process that, and pointing us to Jesus and showing us that actually he felt sad and perfect son of God, walking in God's will, um, and so it's finding a broken world to experience that as a to bring it to God. So thank you for serving us so well, and I'm looking forward to next week already, so thank you.